Hi humans, welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, onto the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Linda K. Klein. She is the founder and president of Break Free Together, a not-for-profit organization that uses story exchange to break silence and shame stemming from purity culture. The organization was born out of Linda's 15 years of research on gender and sexuality among girls raised in conservative evangelical churches, documented in her award-winning book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) So before we jump in, you know, we now know your accolades and your amazing accomplishments, (laughs) but we want to know a little bit more about you. So could you just give us your background, where you're from, and um, maybe some personal details about your life? Sure. Yeah. So I actually grew up in the Midwest. I live in New York City now, but I grew up in the Midwest. And when I was in seventh grade, I joined an evangelical church in my community after having a pretty powerful born-again experience. And that was utterly you know, a a life-changing moment for me. You know, I really, I really um, believed in sort of death to the old self and the beginning of a new way of being, a new community, a new sense of how we could create a better world, quite frankly. Like I loved, I loved so much about what I was learning about radical, you know, um, inclusion and, you know, how we needed to treat each other And, you know, then what ended up happening is that I started to grow a little bit older and Mm -hmm. all of the ways in which I experienced what I perceived as unconditional love became revealed as deeply conditional, which Mm -hmm. helped me to start to see that so many other people, you know, were receiving conditional love and perhaps had actually started to see that it was conditional earlier than me because I, I belonged and fit in a lot of ways in the early days, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm a pretty, pretty um, feminine um, person. I, you know, I'm white. I'm straight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you fit the, but, fit the um, boxes. Check the I boxes fit the out. boxes. Yeah, but then as I started to grow older, I think the first thing that really started to happen is my body started to develop, mm. and I had, you know, more fleshiness, and I'm also very. Uh, friendly. And so I was talking to everyone, including the boys, which was definitely sexualized and perceived as flirtation. Yeah. And, and I was like kind of fashion conscious. So <laughs> I was, I was wearing, I was wearing the clothes that my public school friends were wearing, right. right? Mm-hmm. Which was deemed uh, absolutely um, threatening within right. my evangelical context. So I was, as I grew older, the more that, the more that I my personality was revealed and my body was revealed the more that I was pulled aside and told that I was a stumbling block 
for the men and the boys in the youth group. And I remember just feeling like it didn't matter what I did at a certain point. You know, it was almost like every day there was some new way in which I was wrong and I was bad. And it started to feel like, you know, that, that was sort of the, the, the choice I had. It was me, you know, my selfhood, right. <laughs> um, or losing me, you know, in order to belong within this community. Right. And, right. and so I ended up leaving when I was really like 2021 is when I, when I left, but it was a, a slow unraveling. And when I left, I thought that now I would be free to live and to think and to feel in alignment with my spirit and to, you know, essentially be free of all of this sexual shame and fear and anxiety that I had internalized growing up. And what I discovered is that actually I was by no means free, that these things were such a part of me such a part of my self-conception, such a part of my, my habits and my way of interacting with myself and with the world that not only was I still experiencing, uh, you know, the same fear and shame and anxiety, but now that I was starting to explore my sexuality and starting to push some of the gender uh, constraints, you know, now I was actually triggering those things mm. in me yeah. in ways that created these PTSD-like physical responses. So I started to have nightmares. I started to have, um, you know, anxiety that became so great that it was, came out in my body. I would, you know, for example, I have eczema that comes out when I get stressed. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. And so my, my eczema was so bad in these years that I was scratching myself until I bled. I mean, I just have like, you know, my sheets were stained with blood all the time. Right. And, um, and then when I really started to explore the possibility of having sex with my long-term boyfriend uh, in my early 20s, you know, that's, that's when I started to have the fear ramp up. And I was taking pregnancy tests, though I wasn't having sex because, you know, the fear that we had gotten close enough, uh, though, of course, my absolute breakdowns ensured that we never actually had sex, right? Like, you know, my falling apart into tears and like holding myself into a tight ball made it pretty, pretty tough, pretty tough to actually get there. Anyway, so those, so those experiences were really the experiences that I think started me on this kind of wandering journey that became a 15 year quest. I, I started out by reaching out to my girlfriends back home in my youth group and asking if anyone else was experiencing what I was because the people in my secular life were not, yeah. you know, and, um, and heard so many of the people I grew up with experiencing these things, though some of them, you know, had done everything the way that they were quote unquote supposed to, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> right. had gotten, had gotten married without even having had a kiss, yeah. you know, were still, we're still evangelical and still very much a part of the community, whereas I was outside of it now. And that aha of I am not alone, even among my childhood community, right? That that's what made me made me realize there's something so much bigger going on in it. If I'm ever going to heal, you know, if I'm ever going to be healthy, mm-hmm. if I'm ever going to have a healthy relationship, I need to understand what's going on, what happened, right? Like what yeah. happened that that I have been shaped this way, that we have been shaped this way. And how do we break out by, 
by finding the kind of sacred text of each other's lives because there were no, you know, podcasts about this out there, right? right? There were, where there were no blogs, there were no, um, uh, you know, online communities or articles or books. <laughs> it was right. just a vacuum. It's just a vacuum. So I started, you know, about 15 years ago, you know, with the, um, I went back to my hometown. I interviewed every girl I grew up with in my youth group, uh, who I could get a hold of that year, who is now between 20 and 29 about her adult experiences with sex and gender and sexuality, having been raised in what we now know, uh, was the purity movement. Yeah. And then started to interview people after that first year, started to interview people around the country, uh, a variety of people. But I really focused on people who were raised um, as girls in white American evangelical churches, mm-hmm. you know, which is which is 20 percent of the country today. Right. And was even more when I started the research. Yep. Course, right. Yeah. 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 And, and over that time, you know, really started to reveal the the commonalities of so many of our stories and so many of our reactions and started to really understand what we were reacting to. The fact that there had been a really intentional purity movement yeah. that the white evangelical Christian church launched, particularly in the early 1990s, um, that had saturated our lives with the kinds of messages that had developmentally shaped us into the people we now were, you know, people struggling and often in silence and often with the perception of isolation. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, you know, reading some of the the interviewers or interviewees and hearing the different stories, I feel like my story was almost like middle of the ground where like, I didn't have intercourse with like other boyfriends and stuff, but like, we were sexually active in other ways besides intercourse. Um, and, but yeah. so I waited for like basically penetration. Adam and I waited for that till we got married. And that was like, you know, we've come a long way in a lot of our um, deconstruction and our faith um, now after you know, we've been married now for two years, but a lot has happened in two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but I, I'm still, it's interesting cause like in a way I kind of did things right, you know, in quote unquote right, because I waited to have intercourse. But at the mm-hmm. same time, there's still so much that I am mentally still struggling with because my whole relationship with God, my whole life, because I, I started puberty when I was like nine. So I sexuality to me became very real to me very early on. Um, mm-hmm. And so my whole life... Um, I was just like a sexual person. And so that was like my relationship with God was like me basically being like, I, Hey God, what's up? I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, yeah, how you yeah. doing? It's me. I'm sorry. I'll see you again later when I do this again. <laughs> like when I'm saying sorry again. Um, and I, you know, there were some good moments, you know, I'd be in worship and it was great, but the premise of my relationship with God was based around my sexual sins, quote unquote. Um, And so I always thought that, you know, getting married would fix that, that side. I'd be like, okay, after that, I'm like, wipe my hands and I'm like clean, ready to go. I can like (laughs) finally be just like free from these, I don't know, the, the thoughts and just that, that being my relationship with God. And, um, and it doesn't just go away like a flip, like it doesn't like a switch. It doesn't just, that doesn't just go away because you're, body and your brain is just trained and my relationship yeah. with God was completely based off of that so then without that 
now being married and having sex, like now I question what is my relationship with God? And I'm all, I almost have a starting over because I don't mm. even know who God is when mm. it comes to me without my wow. s- sexual uh, condemnation, I guess. Wow. wow. That's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like I'm not, I know I'm not the only one. And that's what like, I love about these conversations, but like, it does feel lonely. Cause you, you're just, it's, if you want a personal relationship, like I want a personal relationship with God. And sometimes that name is changed, you know, yeah, the light, energy, divine, whatever. Like I want that relationship, but it's, I, I still am navigating what parts of God are there that I had before that were positive mm. and mm. learning to le- leave behind and set down the stuff that was just harmful. And yeah, anyway, yeah. that's what I love about these conversations though, because it helps bring healing to hear other people's stories, which is what I love about your book and the way you go about things and Obviously, your break free together. That's basically the whole premise is like bringing people together who have all these different stories and it sheds light knowing and then people learn that they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's the, so the first thing I want to say is it, it's so natural that that would be your understanding of of how you needed to connect with God. Because the purity movement, I think, created that, you know, for example, you've got all these purity products that came out, right, that saturated the, the world. You've got the, the purity rings, the purity pledges, the purity curricula, et cetera. But, you know, the product that I think really says it all is you've got a purity-themed Bible, mm, right? Yeah, right. So, so you've got, you know, in one case, 60 pages of extra text all about the importance of your remaining pure, and that's layered onto the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's got a little you know? bit of weight with it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so I think it's utterly natural for people, you know, even if they don't read the purity theme Bible, I think the purity theme Bibles kind of represent, um, you know, the, the depth, you know, with which this was focused on, I think for everyone, but particularly for women and girls, and particularly if you felt like you were sexual from the age of nine, which by the way, you know, I would define sexuality very broadly, you know, as, as being an embodied person. Right. Right. And, and Mm -hmm. so, you know, I would say that we all are, you know, experiencing physical, um, uh, sensation, you know, from very, very young, you know, and, and what happens is I think as girls and women in this community, we are sexualized. It's like, it's like, we're like assigned you're a very sexual person. It's interesting. A lot, a lot of my interviewees, when I was interviewing people said, I was very sexual. That was a very, very common Mm. phrase that I heard. And then when we would get into it, you know, what would be revealed is in some cases, you know, they had never had any physical contact with anyone, Yeah. you know, Mm. and what I was very sexual meant was I thought about, I thought about like anything from 
you know, maybe I'll want to kiss that person someday. Right. <laughs> you, know I mean? you know, so, but, but because we were taught that there's, there are only two options, there's pure and impure. Mm-hmm. And if you are pure, you are utterly absent of all what I would say, you know, is embodied experience right. in many ways. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so people perceived themselves as like really sexual, right? Yeah. And, and I think that wasn't accurate. And a, and a, and a similar, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they were like, you know, comparatively to general society, really, really sexual what I, is what I mean when I say that. Mm, you know, yeah, and another, right. another common thing that came up am, among my interviewees that still comes up a lot. I, you know, I think I've, as many conversations as I had before the book came out, I've had, you know, just as many since the book came out. Yeah. Because there have been so many people who have come forward, but you know, something that I have heard about for a long time and continue to hear about is people who um, have a lot of ambiguity about sexual addiction. Mm. So yeah. a lot of people are going to sex addiction groups, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, have never had sex, perhaps have never even kissed anyone. Mm. And, you know, to me, you know, that I think you know, is indication of a tremendous restraint, right? you know, which is not sex addiction. No, right. <laughs> That's willpower. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, so I think that is, I think that is indicative of like, you know, you, you don't belong in this addict group, but right. because, because we have seen it as something that, you know, if you are not pure, you are impure. You know, we think that, we think that if we are continuing to have these thoughts, if we're continuing to, even for people who are having sex, right. You know, which, which is not necessarily uh, an addictive, <laughs> an addictive experience for a lot yeah. of people, but when you hate yourself afterward, right. you know, and yet still cannot eradicate your sexuality, right. And still cannot eradicate your desire and still cannot eradicate your, your bodily sensation, right. And your mm. thoughts, you know, the, it, it, it is perceived as addiction, right? Wow. Because you want so bad to get rid of this thing yeah. because you're told you have to, but this thing, you know, is, is a part of us. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's, I think that that's, um, this it's, you get sent on these kind of mind games, right? So it takes up a lot of space. And, and I, I love the way that you framed this, notion that your relationship with God was sort of defined by this, because I think when you're taught that this has to take up so much space, you know, often what, what else is there room for? Right. Right. When those go so hand in hand that like, and I, I had heard you talk uh, a while back about how a lot of these, these purity movements and events and things would simultaneously ask you to pledge your purity and, and also accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior mm. and find salvation. And to, to be able to have an event in, in such a, hum, a moment in your life where you have such an experience that binds those two things together, it's just, it becomes nearly impossible to separate that. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, like, for me, like, um, you know, when you were talking about in the beginning, you are talking about, like, your boyfriend, Dean, and how it felt so good. So, obviously, you were like, then obviously it's wrong. Like there right. must be something bad here. And like that obviously can happen and has happened in so many people's like lives. But I I kind of had like a, an opposite situation where <clears throat> I, before Adam, 
my lovely, amazing husband. Before him, I I did settle a lot because I knew that if it didn't feel great, then it was probably good. <laughs> mm. I was like, well, this isn't this isn't wonderful. This isn't a fairy tale. This is just settling or like this is just it's just average. So therefore, this is like what I meant for. Like that's what my life is supposed Oof. to be because Oof. happiness was was wrong. Like true like yes. joy, happiness, like fulfillment somehow had to be wrong. So like most of my life was just me settling and not just like I mean, that obviously correlated not just my relationships, but in so many things in my life where I just like settled because good things, great things were somehow made to be bad. Right. Well, because you can't possibly be a good Christian who is, you know, suffering well, if you're not suffering. Mm. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can't, you can't prove, you can't prove what an excellent, you know, Christian you are right if your life is beautiful and and be- and and beauty you know we are we are told that satan is the prince of lies right so you know so pleasure is often you know often deemed as a lie selfishness yeah, yeah selfishness or self-focus or pride or sin or you know whatever it is because yeah it's indicative it's indicative of you're getting a little too much out of life, which, which must mean wow. that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And, and that's very common. There's such a narrative yeah. too, around the separation of what joy and happiness is. Right. Yes. Joy is like the experience that you're allowed to have this, like this, like long, long suffering joy. But if you yes. have momentary happiness, that's something that, that is, is, is self-serving and it's something that's, that's passing and it's of the flesh and, and, and that joy that you're allowed to feel as a Christian is, it always has to come with so much pain and so much suffering. I just, I just feel like, yeah, people confuse joy is happiness. And I feel like a lot of messages are, are confusing hope and joy. There is hope. Mm. Hope is, you know, whenever like you're hoping for something like maybe good in the future. Like you're like looking at something in the distance and you're like, that's something positive. That's, that's hope. Joy is just happiness. I mean, and that's just my, that's honestly my opinion. I'm no like philosopher, theologian or anything, but like that's something that I've definitely like had to heal in my own life and even falling in love with Adam and being like, Oh my gosh, this is the best thing in the entire world. If this is wrong, let me be wrong. It was like the mm-hmm. thing that turned my world upside down. Cause I was just like, okay, I literally spoke to God and I was like, God, if this is wrong, um, just, I guess, I guess we can't do this anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because it's just too good. And then I remember literally it was like that moment and my relationship with God, so much healing, took place even in that moment and I just I just heard a voice or just a stillness that was like yeah like who do you think I am of course I want you to be happy like right nah. but that's not something I ever was taught to like actually listen in or press into um because yeah my mm. whole life I just thought martyrdom was the closest to holiness which is just not true um I do want to go back to like your leaving the evangelical church um so were you were you single at the time 
when you left the church? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, like I said, it was kind of a, a slow unraveling. So the day that I officially <laughs> left the church, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I, I was single then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then what was like, because I, I hear so many different stories of leaving the church, you know, people leave the church and they're, they can still keep like, they're happy and their faith and their Christian, you know, I, ideology. Was that the same for you? Or was it something like you had to walk away entirely and come back? What was, what was your mm. relationship with, with God or Jesus or anything like that in the process of you walking away from the evangelical church? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think I was very confused about who God was for me now as well. And, you know, I had really learned that there was only one form of Christianity, um, and that was evangelical Christianity, and that all other claims of Christianity were false. Um, And therefore, when I left evangelicalism, I really really saw it as leaving Christianity. Yeah. You know? Right. And... And then, and then there was this question of like, what about God, right? Right. Does God live outside of Christianity? Yep. And, you know, for about six months or so, I remember, you know, I still very much felt God and, you know, I was a, I was a, you know, a pray your way through the day kind of person, right? So I was sort of in constant conversation with God. And so I still had this desire to, to reach out to God. Right. Yeah. And, and I remember resisting that and being like, no, you're not allowed to do this anymore. I'm, I'm sorry, God, but I'm not allowed to talk to you because, because I've been told that now, you know, I am outside of the realm of like those who get to access you. Right. Yeah. And I'm, so still talking to God, but in this, like, no, I will not, not answer your phone calls. Yes. <laughs> I totally you know? relate to that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think, and I think, you know, the relationship with God came back way before the relationship with Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, one of the things that I was doing when I was really, when, after I had left um, Christianity, and I would say again, left Christianity, um, was, was studying Christianity. So I started to, you know, I was still had a relationship with it, but it was a different kind of relationship. Um, so, you know, I would take religious studies classes and, um, I I did that in in college and it was actually incredibly helpful for me. Right. So it was a very active deconstruction of the faith overall and an understanding of the, a greater understanding of the historical Jesus and of the context and, you know, so on and so forth. So, so that, that was sort of my relationship with religion. Um, and then I had a, and then I had a different relationship with God, which was, which was this kind of spiritual, um, you know, walking alongside someone, something, right? Right, yeah. And, um, and then it wasn't really until, you know, I, I mean, I left evangelicalism at, at the age of, of um, uh, 21. The, the last nail in the coffin, you know, was, was 21. And it wasn't until I was 30 or so that I was, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, but I can't remember how much I talk about the, um, the joining of the community, but, Mm. um, I joined a gospel choir. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I joined it is because I had a colleague who was in it and I went to go see her perform and it was this multiracial, you know, on fire, tons of fun, you know, gospel choir. 
And I remember being like, oh, I want that. I want to be a part of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and not, not because of the religion, right. But right. just because of the music right. and the community. Mm-hmm. And so I said to this woman, oh my gosh, that was so amazing to see that concert. I would love to join a choir like that. And she said, you know, it's, an, it's a community choir. You're welcome to come. Yeah. And I went to the re- first rehearsal and I remember it was my first time really joining a religious activity. Yeah. Now, I actually I have a great story about this. So, so I join and I was like sitting up very straight and I was like, I am going to not give them an inch to critique me, you know, and like, I, you know, and I was very cautious about what I was wearing in the early days. Yeah. You know? But meanwhile, you know, I'm in New York city. It was a very progressive church. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there are definitely <laughs> like people in this gospel choir who are not dressing as conservatively as I was yeah. for these rehearsals, right. Right? right? And who are, who are clearly, you know, not, you know, um, not straight, you know? Right. So, so I was like, all right, I'm, but I think I trust them. But I remember even in those early days, in addition to my fear of being shamed, I also had a real discomfort with the words of the music. Mm. And, and I remember, you know, the songs, their lyrics were these words that I knew how I was supposed to interpret as a evangelical, as an right. evangelical. And I did not agree with those words and did not believe those words and believe them to be harmful. Yeah. And so I remember just being like wrestling in the early days, like, can I have these things come out of my mouth? Wow. Yeah. And and what I ultimately ended up deciding was, um, you know, I, I actually have the agency to choose to interpret these words as I choose to interpret them, right. to interpret Christianity as I, I choose to interpret it. Exactly. And even if someone listens to me sing those words and may interpret it differently, right, and may interpret it mm-hmm. in the way that I was taught mm-hmm. to interpret it. Right. Um, you know, that, that is their journey right. and I'm not responsible for their journey, but I can, I can sing out these words and mean what I mean mm-hmm. and, be, and, and be in integrity. And so in many ways, that was the first reclaiming of my Christianity in a more, in a more institutional sense. And yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the funny story that happened. So I, I, you know, I didn't know a lot about people's individual lives in the early days. Yeah. And, um, so I had a birthday party. Um, my 30th birthday party, actually. And I invited a bunch of choir members to my birthday party, and I had about four of them show up. And one of them was wearing a t-shirt of the Golden Girls. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and I remember going over to one of my friends, or I remember going over to the, to the person who was wearing the t-shirt and saying, you know, I'm from the Midwest. People always think I'm a rose. I don't know. You like, (laughs) (laughs) and and anyway, the guy wearing the shirt was like, actually, someone earlier, you know, today said that you were a Blanche, and I was Mm. like, a Blanche. (laughs) (laughs) Which, for anybody who doesn't know the Golden Girls, Rose is kind of the like um, the like ditzy Midwestern character, and Blanche is the hypersexual character, right? So I was like, who said I'm a Blanche? It must be the one woman who I invited from the gospel choir, oh, right? Gosh, she yeah. would be this guy's friend, right? right? Because they were, so I was like, oh, oh, I know who said that. 
you know? And I was like, though, my great fears, here they are, right? Yeah. Like I'm being perfect in the gospel choir and I'm still being sexualized. Yep. I'm still being critiqued. So I'm walking around and I go over to another friend of mine from college and I say, you know, someone at this party, this person, I'm pretty sure said that I am a branch. <laughs> and my, and my friend, my friend goes, yeah, yeah, that that was me. I said that. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, what? Why, why would you say that? And he goes, wait, which one is Blanche? I've never seen the Golden Girls. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so you have all these ideas about like the social space you're finding yourself in. <laughs> That's right. That yes. immediately and associate back to your church. Your completely. Church and of course, now what I know is that, you know, of the people who came to that party, they were all queer, you know, they were yeah. all, you know, exploring sexuality as I yeah. started to get to know them better. They were all exploring sexuality in ways that would absolutely not have them calling me a Blanche. <laughs> and not for those reasons anyway. So like, and we certainly... just want to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, my friend from college was just, who knows why he made such a point. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, but that's, but that was, I think that story really is indicative of how hard it was for me to come back to organized religion. And yeah. I think, and I think, you know, what a real battle it was and a, and a 10 year span, you know, between yeah. when I left evangelicalism to when I started a journey to say, what would it feel like? What would it be like for me to return to this religion? Wow. Yeah. But to return to it in a way that, that is something that I can stand by and that I can feel good about. Right. We totally, totally relate to that. Um, So we, we go to a church here in Nashville called Grace Point. um, And it's, it's an all inclusive, very progressive church. um, And it's like, I'm really glad we found it as quickly as we found it. Uh, I feel very grateful that that happened for us because we went through our deconstruction and there was only a little while where I was like, where do I go? Who are my people? Like, yeah. well, because we had also, stepping back even further, we'd been in the Christian music industry for years. And um, yeah, so then there was a community even within that. And then when we weren't touring, there was, didn't have that community. And then it was just very like lonely. And so I'm, I'm grateful that we found our church as soon as we did. But um, when you were talking about like the lyrics of the songs, like, I definitely know that both of us relate to that um, because the thing that we really loved doing, I mean, although I loved doing our like original stuff in my, in our band, you know, we were both talking yesterday, like one of the best parts about our, our touring was whenever we got hired to do worship stuff. So worship mm. was really close to our hearts mm. and then um, something we loved to do. It was just so, yeah, we did that some, for some people, they like different stuff for us. We loved singing and worshiping and dancing that's just like how I we like to worship and um so there's so there's so much of a connection to a lot of that the sound of worship music even you know because it is a genre you know when you hear a worship guitar like it's just obvious when it's like Chris Tomlin or it's obvious when it's like Mm -hmm. you know it's worship music it's pretty you can you can catch it and so like there's that vibe but then there's also like the words and it's interesting, you know, hearing you say that you can, you, it's, uh, it's up to you, like how you interpret it. You know, it's, you can, you can sing it and you decide like what it means to you. And also right. 
other people's experiences, not on you. Um, Because that's something I've had to learn too, is that it's not not all up to me. But that being said, it's very intriguing to me. You know, I wrote, so I wrote gloves, you know, for out of um, being in the Christian music industry. It was very much like the grip that it had on me. And then Mm -hmm. now I'm actually considering taking my old band, Love Collide, and bringing it back to life and writing worship that is aligned with who we are now um, and seeing if there's a space space for that because, mm. you know, there's worship is something that so many people connect to, but it is hard, at least for people, especially in the beginning of their deconstruction, to know that they have the agency mm. to sing the words and and change the meaning in their hearts, right? You know, even if they're saying the same things, they're like, you, you can decide what it means. Um, and before I ever got to that point, I, I didn't, I didn't know I could do that. And I'm, you know, I'm interested in writing worship music for people who want to sing words that maybe don't want to say he God, you know, and maybe people who don't want to talk about all of our unworthiness, but Mm -hmm. instead talk about you know, love and being worthy and being um, welcomed as you are and that kind of stuff. Because I feel like, you know, I'm I'm grateful to have gotten to the point where I realize I have that agency. But a lot of my deconstruction, I didn't know. I didn't know I had that opportunity to shift my gaze in that way. Yeah, and the reality is, is that some of those songs cannot be reinterpreted. Right. Right. So, Mm. you know, some, some of those songs just need to go. Right. And and we definitely need new music that that replaces those. I, it's, I, I've actually thought a lot about this because, as you know, I have um, history as a singer songwriter back right. in the day. And so I thought a lot about this. And I one day I was on the subway, and I just had this flash, you know, one one of those kind of holy flashes. I would mm. say, right? Yeah. I just had this flash that was like, if you really want to change the world, um, you need to write worship music yeah, because the meditation that people experience in church, the meditation that is singing songs, you know, and particularly within an evangelical context Mm. where you're singing the same words, you sing that song, you know, five, six times. And you really do get into this, this meditative, this purposefully meditative state, right? And this purposefully sort of like um, you know, getting to a state where, where the words, you're taking the words in in greater depth. They're like musical understand. mantras. Essentially. They're musical mantras. Right. And then you repeat them when you get home because now they're stuck in your head. So now yeah. you're in the shower and you're singing those words, right? And so what we meditate on, you know, has a huge impact on how we're shaped. Because And research yeah. is very clear about that, that, you know, that what you meditate on will will dramatically impact you yeah so so we've got all of these songs that are meditations upon uh problematic things right Mm -hmm. and and to and to you know to change what people meditate on and that's why i remember being on the subway and what what became clear in that subway moment was nobody will know (laughs) like the huge seismic change that you're having if you do this because these are these tiny, you know, moments in people's lives, but that have an utterly overwhelming impact on our, 
our development and yeah. our perceptions of the world, right? Yeah, right? So so I am totally with you. And and believe it or not, I actually wrote a worship song. I didn't love it, but yeah. I did I did create one with a friend of mine, and yeah. I should connect you to that friend because he has a project which is all about reworking um uh worship music. Oh, awesome. And yeah, so he so he has been working with a number of artists to really do that. And and that's that is vital. Like yeah. we absolutely oh, yeah. need that. You have to relanguage things like that just so that you especially when you're in a place to present it to other people to be able to give somebody something that they can latch onto where you're able to say, look, you don't have to come in here with this like discerning mind. Like you can fall into meditation because you're safe here. The, yeah. the, the God that we're that we're talking about and that we're worshiping loves you. We're not we're not speaking on things that have so much weight behind them. And and I think that's really important to be able to bring to people. Yeah. Because yeah. because so much of worship is about it's it's about connecting to your deeper self and mm-hmm. almost losing that sense of uh, having having to hold that protection yeah. and and that yes. social idea of of Christianity that people ten, tend to bring together in a church environment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it's it's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. Where is your friend? You're in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. He's he's in he's in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. Um, okay. Yeah, that's awesome. I we live in Nashville. Yeah. I don't know if we said mm-hmm, that. Yeah, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we live in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm like around so many writers, but and it's it's interesting to kind of meet people even within our own church that have come from very similar backgrounds and seeing yeah. how it's people are starting to like pick up that there's a need for this, that there's a need for this new new worship. Yeah. yeah. And I'll give you just just for the sake of your listeners, his name is um, Brian Sachiro, and mm. I believe the, the I'm not I'm not sure that I know what the name of the project yeah. is, but, but he's um, yeah. If you're interested in him and and what he's up to, um, yeah, that's his name. That's amazing. So that kind of leads me into a question I was really wanting to get into earlier. Um, so talking about relanguaging things for Christians that do find themselves having deconstructed or in the process of deconstructing all of these like ideas around what their faith has to be. Do you feel like a lot of the hurt that's been caused in that church evangelical space is through interpretation? Like, do you think it's through bad interpretation or like it's a human construct or do you feel like there's purity culture kind of imbued into the words of the Bible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly purity culture is in, is in the Bible. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Right. Um, and, and I also think that the evangelical interpretation, you know, takes that to the next level. Um, right. I mean, it's interesting, you know, to, to kind of wrestle with that question, you know, I want to go back to music for a second. So mm-hmm. you've got, you've got these songs that are, are rooted, you know, in particular times. They were written in particular times, right? Yeah. And and I would I would argue that our our sacred wisdom is deeply contextual. Right. So, um, you know, so I, in my personal opinion, I feel like extremes tend to be, uh, you know, oftentimes problematic. So, um, so you know, the extreme of self obsession, you know, is problematic. Yeah. But the extreme of self-denial is also problematic, right? right? right. 
So if you're going to have a sacred text or a sacred song, right, um, that brings people closer to a middle of like, you know, being able to say love your neighbor as you love yourself with the trust that you love yourself, right? Mm. Um, But not so much that you are unable to love the other, right? Um, you know, that, that, that needs to respond to the context of the time and to the context of the population. So, you know, so, so there may have, have been a time in which we needed to tell people, you know, you're not everything, (laughs) you know, but, but we are certainly in a moment right now where many of us grew up believing you are nothing, Yeah, you know? And, and so I feel like, I feel like, you know, what we meditate on, um, needs to, needs to be responsive to where we are as a culture and where we are as a community. And so, you know, and, and everything is rooted in culture and is rooted in community. And, and we know that the, that the words of Jesus were radical Mm. for their time, radical around inclusion, right? Radical around acceptance and non-judgmentalism. And, you know, and, and if we were to take that same spirit of the law, right. And that same radical, um, you know, energy, you know, today, you know, that, that is, that is pretty phenomenal, you know? Yeah. So, so I mean, so that, so yes, there are things in the Bible that I think, you know, that I think are very useful and that I think are, um, you know, important. And I also think that there are some things that are deeply contextual, that um that are are not not what we need you know in this moment right right um so so yeah so similarly right like 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 if we believe if we believe that god is alive you know and if we believe that god continues to reveal you know and if we believe that um that our world con- needs to continue to wrestle you know even as things are are, um, unfolding and changing, you know, then so too must our, not only our religious interpretation, but our religious revelation, you know? And, and it's interesting, like, like, so imagine when we were young, (laughs) you know, the, the lessons that we were learning at 14, right? Like they shouldn't be the same lessons that we're learning at 24, although sometimes they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because there are some lessons that I think are truly timeless. Right. Yeah. Yes. But um, but you know, we 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 should be allowing the the spirit to continue to flow if, if we are if we're gonna stand, you know, I'm I'm assuming um a, a position of um that that spirit is out there and right. that we are in relationship with spirit. I know that not everyone believes that. Yeah. And I, I have no, um, uh, no desire to convince people of that. Yeah. You know, should, should that not be, should that not be their, um, their way of understanding the world. Yeah. But, you know, if we are going to accept that, then let's accept that, that spirit didn't die, mm. you know, that if spirit was ever alive, that spirit is still alive. Right. And that, and that there are things that are timeless that need to be reinterpreted. Um, and that there are things that need to, need to be let go of. Mm. And, um, because we live in a different context. So let's take that spirit of radicalism and bring it to our context today. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was asking on our, um, you know, on our Instagram, everything I, I put out there, I think you saw, 
like if anybody had any questions to go ahead and mm, yeah. send them in. And um, the main one that was interesting to me, because um, I, I don't think I really know your your opinion on it, but just hearing your your language. Um, somebody was just asking pretty point blank your opinion on the binary or the lack thereof. Mm. Um, mm. And I don't know exactly in what situation they're talking about, but I, I, I'm assuming in any way, I guess, I mean, mm-hmm, life mm-hmm, mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. non-binary. Um, so if you have any sort of like, just because this person was just very <laughs> excited about this question, then I got a direct message saying the same thing. Um, if you could just kind of give us your just a little bit of um, your opinion on that, that'd be great. Oh, I talk about this all the time. Okay. Like in my personal life, okay. I talk about this all the time. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I, I am just like utterly obsessed with the fact that the binary is is deeply problematic and utterly false. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and, and I feel like, I feel like I don't even know how to approach it in, you know, with this as the question, because right. it is, it is, it is in absolutely everything. Right. And, and, um, I don't know. So I don't know. What do you, how what aspect we, of it? I don't, well, I don't know what they, their question really was. They just kind of said, yes. like, I just want to hear, um, but like, <clears throat> yeah. how do you think we got, like why, why, or how did we get to a point in humanity? And when did this begin? Like, how did we get to be so obsessed with binary? Like, yes, no, black, white, right, wrong. Like, how did we, how did we get so obsessed with like two options? You know, so we have difficulty holding complexity because complexity, you know, like is confusing. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is inherently right. confusing, yeah. right? And so, you know, with kids, you, you know, one of the great things about kids is that kids are like so justice oriented, yeah. right? <laughs> um, you know, like, like I remember when I was watching Family Ties mm. and you all remember Family Ties? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was watching Family Ties and Alex P. Keaton won a contest and Matt, and then he, because he knew it would be meaningful to Mallory, mm. he said, oh, I, I'm not going to, um, claim that prize you know Mm. I'm gonna so that the second place winner who is Mallory will get the prize yeah and then afterward Mallory was like Alex I beat you I knew I would beat you (laughs) and I was like and I was like that is wrong Mallory (laughs) Mallory you know do not shame your brother for your brother has done a very loving thing for you like I was just indignant I was so angry I still remember today I was so angry because I was like Mallory how so dare. how dare you but you know as i grow older of course i look at that and i look at this absolutely complex situation where you have a brother and a sister who have been in relationship for a very long time you know and this is one instance within a much larger relationship right mm-hmm. you know like you start to see you start to see the way that that nothing is clear and nothing yeah. is black and white, right. you know? And, and that, and that just comes with time, you know? So when I was in third grade or whatever it was, it was very clear, you right. know? And, and as time goes on, we start to see the complexity. And, and I think, I think it's very simple and easy for us to categorize things as good or bad mm-hmm. or as right or wrong or whatever it is. Yeah. And to a step away from that into a little bit more complex to label and categorize things, yeah. right? right? These people are this way. These people are this way. This region is this way. People who believe this 
you know, are this kind of thing, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that categorization is like a step, a step toward, um, a little bit more complexity, but is still absolutely reductive and inaccurate, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And what, and what we really need to do is push ourselves, you know, push ourselves to, to hold the, the many shades of gray, you know, yeah, right. and to, and to not hold ourselves or anyone else, you know, to binaries or to categorization. Yeah. And, right. and so these reductive ways of being in the world. So, you know, so in the same way um, that I think it's, it's dangerous for us to, as we were to go back to what we were talking about before, about the spectrum of, um, of worthiness and um, self, like the spectrum of like, I am, I am worth nothing and right. self-denial. And at the other end, I am worth everything and therefore self-obsession, right? right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that we need to like find the, <laughs> the middle, middle ground, ground there, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, we, we need to recognize that, that other people, you know, live, live within, within mm-hmm. spectrums, sure. you know, and, and in this, you know, somebody who has done something horrific may have also absolutely been a hero, you know? Mm-hmm. And right. so too, you know, we, we have been, um, we have done all of us things to hurt other people and yeah. things to hurt ourselves. And we, you know, have all of us, I imagine, you know, made good choices, you know, t- loving choices toward self, loving choices toward others. Yeah. And, and, you know, as long as we, as long as we resist that, which is not just something that we find in evangelicalism, though that is very real in evangelicalism. Mm. But, you know, is, I mean, just look at how the media, like the media cannot hold complexity, right? right. Like, no. you know, and, and if anybody says anything complex and nuanced, you know, in a time in which people are in their camps, yeah. you know, like they, they won't, it won't actually be read as complexity nope. and nuance. It'll be read, you know, as, you know, people will shove it into one yeah. end of the binary or another, right? Right, right. So, so we have a, we have a huge problem with that as a, as a society. And I just think we need to, um, develop our brains and like, and like, and like allow our, like grow up, you know, and allow ourselves to do the hard, hard work of holding the complexity. You know, there, there's this really interesting statistic that finds that people who, um, think they're good people give less money, (laughs) Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is so interesting, right? Like, you know, like there's something about like recognizing ourselves and others and the world, you know, as, as, um, as messy Mm. that I think, that I think, um, makes us hold ourselves and others accountable. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's uh, that's why we've developed what eighty five hundred different denominations in Christianity is because everybody <laughs> right? always wants to have that phase of reconstruction, or they, I, I, I can't even phrase it like that. I guess everybody wants to reconstruct their faith, and I think if you can find find it in yourself to allow that that space to, for for you to realize that God. I mean, if you take it as literal from the Bible is unchanging, but that doesn't mean our perspective of God isn't ever changing. I feel like we only get such a pinhole view of what, of what God is. And, and I think, I think to live in a space where deconstruction is a process and, and Mm. constantly breaking down what it is we do believe without the imposition of that belief on anybody else in, in, 
in a direct way, like like a, a, a different denomination of Christianity or like an indirect way of assumptions about the way that people interact socially. I think, I think for me, that that feels like the healthiest space to be in. So, and lastly, um, just to kind of go back to who you are and what you've done and where people can kind of find you. Um, so you obviously your book pure, we have it and it's amazing. So we definitely recommend that to Mm -hmm. everyone listening. Go get her book. If you haven't already read it, you definitely should. Um, but then also break free together. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure, absolutely. So Break Free Together is a nonprofit organization, but it's also really, I feel like, um, more clearly and more what I was you know, hoping to create. It's a community, yeah. you know, um, and it's people who have come together to resist shame, uh, many of whom were raised in purity culture, yeah. and to embrace our whole selves, you know, to go back to that complexity, to embrace, you know, the all the parts that we separate and label, you know, the body the yeah. mind, the spirit, you know, yeah. um, the heart, you know, to really, um, uh, embrace the, the fullness of who we are as, as people with, with all kinds of stuff. So, <laughs> so, so then how does, if somebody's interested in it, how do they become a part of this community? Yeah. So the part that I'm the most excited about right now, because, you know, we, what we've been trying to do is create these various kinds of story exchange. So people Mm. can really be in exchange with one another. Yeah. And, um, and the part that I'm the most excited about right now is actually a new pilot that we're working on this year where we are actually going to be training people to lead story exchanges in their homes. So if people are interested in doing that, you know, you can actually sign up on the breakfreetogether.org website right now. You can also sign up at lindakklein.com. And, um, and the, basically what we're going to do is we're, we're currently developing a training, which is based on the training that we've been using for multi-table dinner experiences for the last year and a half. Um, and we're, we're developing this training to be basically equip you to call up four of your friends, <laughs> mm-hmm. have them over to your kitchen table or to your living room couch or to your dorm room floor yeah. and engage in a sexuality story exchange using these really well-tested questions that we've developed in a way that is protected, yeah. you know, yeah. and to, to really equip people to start to have these, these, um, these truth telling circles, you know, around the country. Mm. So we'll be, people are signing up now. We'll be uh, training people in the summer. And in September, we're going to have tables around the country. This is all very protected right now because we're piloting. So everybody who's taking part is part of a pilot. They will, you know, have a password will be, um, uh, it'll all be password protected. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have a lot of relationship with break free together because, you know, we want to know how did the circles go, right? Like how Mm -hmm. was your conversation? We really want to learn and be in relationship with people who are doing this. So if people are interested in being a pilot tester, you know, to forward this eventual mission, which is to utterly, uh, you know, impact the levels of leadership, not by talking to them, but by talking to each other in these, in these small private spaces, you know, but believing that ultimately this groundswell 
of just telling the truth about our lives, Mm. you know, is, is what will bubble up and create the kinds of policy changes and the kinds of, you know, Mm. organizational changes and, and theological changes that, um, that I think we can impact, um, we can impact indirectly by healing ourselves and healing each other um, more than we can by begging people, like, please stop shaming us, sir. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Well, I'm really excited for you and I'm excited for the movement and all that. Um, I'll definitely make sure I link everything down below. So if anyone is interested, I'll have all the links in the description of the episode um, and I'll have the links to Linda as well. So you will not miss out on anything. Um Yeah, Linda, thank you so much for being on this episode. I mean, we just really love and appreciate all the work that you do for humanity and for people like us. We're just really so thankful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, um, thank you guys for listening to today's episode with Linda. We are just honored to have spoken with her. She is amazing. Check her out, guys, and until next time. Bye. Bye.